Good morning. We are always thankful for your presence this morning. We are thrilled to be here, and we're thankful that you are as well. If you uh, have your Bibles and you're there in Genesis 4, we're going to continue the sermon series that we have been discussing. And I feel like we've kind of fallen into a sermon series that I didn't have in mind originally. We were going to discuss some questions that God has asked, and that is still the goal. But we have spent several weeks now in the Old Testament, which got me to thinking what you might be thinking. And sometimes studying the Old Testament can feel like you're studying about old historic events and people that seem to have little or no relevance to my life today. In fact, the question might be asked, how does Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel help me Monday deal with the problems that I have? Family problems, marital problems, rearing children, grown children, work issues. How does any of that help me? Let me just suggest that as we have noted, it's one of the reasons that God has given us the Old Testament. These are real people dealing with the very human and real life issues with which we deal every day. All of those things we just discussed and listed are in these early chapters in the book of Genesis. There are family problems, marital issues, there's rearing children, grown children, there's work issues. It's all here. The first family had issues. Adam and Eve, no doubt, had some marital discussions about being put out of the garden, don't you think? <laughs> I mean, uh, can you imagine Eve not saying, the woman you gave to be with me, huh? Uh, maybe she had questions for Adam, and maybe he had questions. Then there's their children. There's Cain and there's Abel. Was Cain a strong-willed child? I don't know. I know he was a strong-willed adult. That's here in Genesis 4. Did the brothers have challenges? Likely. And if they didn't, we know as we read through the book of Genesis, other families and siblings had problems. There's Noah and Ham and Ishmael and Isaac and Esau and Jacob and Joseph and his brothers. There were a lot of family dynamics here in the Old Testament. The second thing to note with regards to the Old Testament and studying it is we're not just learning about humanity. We are also learning about God in the Old Testament. And it's God who is going to help you through your issues on Monday and Tuesday and the rest of the week and month and lifetime. And God has not changed. Humanity has not changed. And therefore, what we're studying and learning back here is as pertinent today, and it will bless our lives if we learn the lessons that God intends for us to learn. Romans 15, 4 says that we, through patience and comfort of the Scripture, might have hope. Now then, when we left off last week, God had come to Cain because of Cain's disobedience. He came to Cain and we studied. He, he counseled with Cain. He questioned Cain. He offered him a way back. You'll recall verse number seven, if you do well, you'll remember the question, why are you angry? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Cain reacted in anger. We noted that, and God warned Cain about his anger. And that is, sin is just outside the door, and if you don't master it, it will master you. Now, what we have learned as we continue to read and as we heard read in verses 7 through 9 is that Cain did not respond to God's 
please properly. In fact, God's warning is rejected. Sin was crouching at the door, and in verse number 8, we read that Cain and his brother were in the field, and Cain attacked his brother and killed him. Now, we'll talk about God's question as a result of that in just a moment. But before we do, there are several lessons that we should learn about Cain and Abel and about God's interaction with man that will help us in our daily lives as we go forward. The first of those lessons is this. Pain and suffering is a part of the human condition. It is here very early in the Bible, and it will continue even to today. It is the common lot of all men, and therefore you and I should not think it strange if we suffer or if those that we love suffer. And we certainly should not think that we've done something wrong inherently, and God is therefore punishing us. With reference to living for Jesus, Peter says this in 1 Peter 4 and verse number 12. He says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. Peter says it's not strange. Paul would say if you live godly, you're going to suffer persecution. There is, first of all, the common lot of all men. If you live on earth, you're going to suffer. And then there's the added additional thought that if you live for Jesus, you're certainly going to suffer. And so we should learn that here in Genesis chapters 3 and 4. Secondly, everyone loses in sin. There are no winners in sin. Adam and Eve lost two sons. Talk about family issues. They had them. One of their sons murdered their other son, and they knew it. Notice chapter 4 and verse 25. The Bible says, And Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. But notice why she named him that and what she said. For she said, God has appointed me another seed or another offspring, and grab the last phrase, in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. Can you imagine the family dynamic? Can you imagine the family discussion? Two of your sons went out to the field, and one of them killed the other. Cain lost his brother. Adam and Eve lost two, uh, two sons. Hopefully Cain didn't lose his soul. Hopefully he repented maybe later. I don't know. But Abel lost his life. The righteous can and do suffer for being righteous and for no other reason than that. Everybody loses in sin. Number three, God didn't intervene. It's kind of hard to miss that point, isn't it? But it's the very thing that many people want to know. Many people want God to stop bad things from happening. In fact, no matter what the tragedy and the difficulty, and no matter how it comes, whether it's brought on by human choice or by natural disaster or anywhere in between, somebody will always ask, where was God? And why didn't God do something? And why didn't God stop it? Some even try to use evil as a proof that God doesn't exist. They say, how can God be good if there's so much evil in the world? Let me suggest to you that such a, such a thought fails to appreciate that calling something evil demands 
God's existence. In fact, it proves it. It doesn't disprove it. Because there has to be an absolute good to measure evil against. If evil is just a matter of personal preference, you have your things, I have mine. What's evil to you actually then may not be evil to me at all. No, when we use the word evil, what we're saying is there is an absolute objective standard, and this violates it. This goes against it. It's evil. That's what we're saying. In fact, we typically all agree there is an objective absolute good, and this falls woefully short of it. We all agree because it violates the perfect character of God. We understand without much issue the very real difference between murdering people and killing ants. In fact, you give no thought, not even a second thought to killing ants if you have them in your yard or in your house. You'll go down the Home Depot or Lowe's and you'll look for it. In fact, you might ask, where is the ant killer? I want a spray, I want a powder, I want something. And you know what? The attendant there, the person working has no qualms. Let me tell you something. We got a whole aisle and new stuff. They'll show you all of it. This works really well. And then there are people who eat chickens and cows, and they rave about how good it tastes. And I don't know of anybody much who begrudges them that. But that's different, isn't it, than murdering humans? Now, we would call that evil. You see, there is an objective standard. And calling something evil demands there is a God that is absolutely perfect. And his objective truth is being violated. But then in addition to that, as a rule, God does not intervene in man's choices. I ask you this morning to consider, can you think of a single instance in Scripture where a human being had a thought in his or her mind and they wanted to take a particular action and then God, with his infinite power and might, stopped them and said, you can't do that. You see, that's not the way it works at all. And God has never done that. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that it may have occurred one time, but I will hurriedly suggest to you I don't know. Because I don't know the person that we'll talk about here. I don't know if he actually had it in his mind to do, and God prevented him. I don't know that. All I know is God is involved in this action because God said he was. The record is Genesis chapter 20. And as you read these first six verses, it's important to remember that as we talked about a few weeks ago, as we start here in eternity, and it, just for the record, from now on, as best as I can remember, that'll be the wall of eternity. If you go past it, I don't know what'll happen to you. I'm just kidding. But we start here in Genesis, and we end there in Revelation. And as we started a few weeks ago, we tried to make the case that God is unveiling His plan to redeem humanity. And as God does that, God will take certain actions to further that plan that go beyond the natural state of things. 
And sometimes men will intervene and interrupt and mess up, or at least for the moment anyway, work against God's plans, and God will fix it and continue marching forward. One of those times is here in Genesis chapter 20, but this is not the norm. In Genesis chapter 20, the context goes back to, as we would have said, Genesis 3.15 with the seed promise, Genesis 12 with the three promises to Abraham, Genesis 17 where God says, in the set time next year, Sarah will have a son. That child will be born in Genesis 21 and 20 verses 1 and 2. And here in Genesis 20, a man interrupts that and God intervenes. Beginning in verse number one, the Bible says, Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. He sojourned in Gerah. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerah, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married now, we just read in verse 1 and verse 2 that Abraham says, she's my sister, and Sarah says, she's my, he's my brother. And so Abimelech, upon hearing that, took Sarah. And now God tells him, she's married. Well, that's news to him. And so he responds in verse number 4, now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless or righteous? And then he recounts. Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity and the innocency of my heart, have I done these, this thing? In verse number six, God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart, you have done this. And I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. I know God is involved because he said he's involved. But even with that involvement, I don't know if Abimelech had made up his mind to go into Sarah and God somehow prevented. I don't know how it took place. I just know God did something here. But this is not the norm. God doesn't intervene and stop humans from making their own choices. And so when people ask, why didn't God do something? The reason that God doesn't intervene is he made us free moral agents. And freedom is not freedom if you don't get to exercise it. God doesn't override ours or other people's free will. We should learn that from Genesis 3. He didn't stop Adam and Eve from choosing which tree. He didn't stop Cain from bringing the wrong offering. And he didn't stop Cain when Cain murdered his brother. And he won't stop you or me from making our own decisions. There are three important reasons why God doesn't stop us from choosing. Number one, our choices is how we grow and develop our faith. The Bible talks about us coming to God and coming to be a part of his family as a birthing process. As a result of that, John says, we're born again, John chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. Peter says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby, 1 Peter 2, 2. In order for one to grow, he has to be allowed freedom to choose, even if he makes bad decisions. 
We can't grow to love the good and hate the evil if we aren't allowed to make our own choices. The development of our faith, our growth, our maturity is done through the freedom to choose. Secondly, we learn to be merciful to others. If it's the case that I'm a newborn babe and I'm growing in the Lord and as I grow, I'm walking and stumbling and learning and growing, guess what every other Christian is doing? They're also walking and learning and growing and stumbling. Hopefully what this produces in me then is an understanding to be merciful to others, to not condemn in others what I allow in myself. Hopefully, my freedom of choice given to me by God, exercised by me, will purge me from hypocrisy and allow me then to be like God and show mercy to others. But then thirdly, it's how God can judge righteously. You see, freedom reveals our hearts. Who we are is shown by our choices. It's shown by what we desire by what we think and what we say and what we do. Our lives then reflect our character and our hearts are revealed and therefore they're exposed to God. Will we submit? Will we humble ourselves? Will we obey? And if we sin, will we repent? All of this is revealed by the freedom to choose. After all, if you want to and if you do wrong, you can repent and be sorrowful or you can be angry. Well, it will reveal who you are. And so God will then make a righteous judgment about us. Lesson number four, we should all learn that sin unrepented of leads to more sin. That really was God's concern for Cain. In verse number seven, if you do well, you'll be accepted. Cain didn't do well. He added sin to sin. The best time to change after sin is immediately. Like leaven, it will grow. See 1 Corinthians 5. Abel's murder was the result of Cain's improper response to wrongdoing. Cain brought the wrong thing and was rejected. And instead of repenting, he murdered his brother. Well, that's the way sin works. In fact, John tells us why he did it in 1 John 3 and verse number 12. John says with reference to love that we should love one another. He hurriedly adds, not like Cain. Don't do it like that. Because he killed his own brother. He murdered him. And why did he do it? John says, because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, if we repent, we'll be forgiven. If we're forgiven, we can move forward. That would have been the proper response. That was the response God was seeking. That's why he came to Canaan. And that's why he said, if you do well. But Cain refused. And if we refuse, we can go in the way of Cain. We can get angry. We can justify our anger. We can blame others and we can defend our actions. We can add sin to sin and make things worse. Jesus said, agree with your adversary quickly. Why? Because if you allow it to grow, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Haven't you had the experience in your life where you've done something wrong, you know you need to say sorry, but the person to whom you need to say sorry is somebody you don't like right now? 
and you go out of the room knowing you need to go back, knowing you need to say sorry, but you look at them and you start thinking to yourself, but I can't say it to them. And then you hold on to it. Let me ask you a question. You think this is going to be better or worse in the morning? The longer you let this go, the more angry you become, the more you can begin to justify, the more you can begin to make yourself right, the more you can begin to feel like I didn't do anything wrong in the first place. And I'm not going to give them the satisfaction of hearing me say I'm sorry. If you're not careful, you will add sin to sin. Many are at odds with God's because of their own guilty consciences. God is not the one who has done wrong. They have. They need to say sorry, but they're angry. Some people move from convicted sinner. They once didn't know the Lord had no use for them. Somebody taught them the truth. They became convicted. They then move from convicted sinner to convinced believer. I believe it. I want to live it. They become a consecrated saint. Over time, they can become a comfortable Christian, soon a constant complainer, ultimately a critical critic. Oh, when you mess up, fess up, and it's best to do that right now, because if you don't, sin leads to more sin. Number five, God is the victim We tend to focus our attention on the wrong things so many times. I've noticed that when conversations with people, they just bypass so many things that need to be talked about, and they end up focusing on something that's not even consequential. It's kind of the way we do to get ourselves out of things that we don't want to discuss or admit. We might think that God's rejection led Cain to be angry, and then he murdered his brother. People's reaction to the exposure of their wrong often leads them to believe and then to convince others that the one who is is wrong is the one who exposed it. The whistleblower, that's the problem. And the victim is me. The sentiment that is often expressed is if they had just left it alone. Why did they have to say something? None of this would have happened. The problem is people don't really establish the proper timeline in how things transpire. So let's do that with God and Cain. The proper place to begin here is that God invited Cain into his presence to commune with him. Now, I don't know what you think about worship or sacrifice one way or the other, but I can tell you this, we don't do God a favor. The invitation extended by God to come into his presence is the blessing. And that's what Cain was given. What a blessing. What an honor to be in the presence of God. What a privilege to offer him something that he has requested. In order for him to get that right, God then instructed Cain on how to approach. And Cain rejected God. That's the order. You see, Cain rejected God's instruction, and therefore he rejected God. And Cain rejected God before God rejected Cain. In fact, God's rejection of Cain is a reaction to Cain's rejection of God. But even then, Cain is the one who got angry. 
And God came to Cain with an offer to fix it. Why are you angry? If you do well, you'll be accepted. He invited him to do well. In fact, he warned him, if you don't, this thing can get worse. There is danger in your anger. And then Cain added sin to sin by murdering his brother. No. The victim here is not Cain. The victim is God. In fact, no one can or ever will be sinned against more than God. David makes it abundantly clear. And if you go back and read the account of David's interaction with Bathsheba, you would very well know there are a lot of humans involved in that scenario. If you want to enumerate the people that David sinned against, it wouldn't be hard to have a long list of people. First of all, David sent and inquired of her, and David was told, that's Uriah's wife. It's not like he didn't know it. Then he sinned against and with Bathsheba. He did that. Against her family, her father, her grandfather, people in his inner circle, some, some of his mighty men, of which Uriah was one. To say the very least, he sinned against Uriah. And if not against Joab, the servant that brought the message, and the servant he sent with the message, and then to say to Joab, be involved in this by putting him in the hottest battle and having him killed? But if you read that text carefully and closely, you will see some words that says it wasn't just Uriah that died. There were other soldiers left and died. When David talks about his sin in Psalm 51 and verse number 4, David says these words with reference to God. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. The verse has 29 words in it. Six of them reference God. You can hear David saying, you, you only have I sinned, done wrong in your sight so that you may be justified in your words, blameless in your judgment. Did David just sin against God in David's estimation? Yes. There is no victimless sin because God is the victim of every sin. God is the victim in Genesis 4, not Cain. Number six, God came back to Cain. He didn't destroy him from afar. He didn't retreat from Cain. He came to Cain and questioned him yet again. Here's the thing to understand with God doing all of this coming it's because relationships can only be restored by both parties. One of the reasons that people struggle so much with forgiveness, and I don't care where you are, if you are in a Bible class and the subject of forgiveness comes up, you've heard it a thousand times. Somebody says, what about? And what about? And what about? Now we read the verses and we, sold, we know 70 times 7. We read Matthew 6, 14 and 15. If you don't forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father won't forgive you your trespasses. We read it. We know what it says. And yet, because of its difficulty in our estimation, we come up with a myriad of reasons and scenarios why, but not in this instance. 
I submit to you that part of the reason people struggle so much with forgiveness is they don't understand their limitations in the process. Relationships are made up of two people. And when relationships are in need of reconciliation because of offense, both parties must participate in order to reach reconciliation. God is ultimately our example in this, and this is why we have Genesis 3 and 4, where God is sinned against. God is the offended, and yet God comes to Adam and Eve. They hear the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God comes to Cain, even though Cain sinned against God. Insofar as God is concerned, he must move first. Because once we have sinned, there's nothing we can do to bridge the gap to get back to God. That's the way it has to work with God. The one who is offended is the one who can offer the forgiveness. This is the limit of what the offended can do. The offended can't do more than that. The reason for that is simple. Because the one who did the wrong must repent. Now remember, the goal is reconciliation. I can only do one part of this process. Jesus said, if your brother trespass against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, circle the if. If he repents, forgive him. What if he doesn't? I can't. But I can't do his job. I can only do my job. The one who has done wrong can offer the forgiveness. The one who did the wrong must repent. If the goal is reconciliation, both people have to do their part. Now, with regards to us, God demands that we both go. Unlike God, we can bridge the gap because we have both failed each other. We have both failed, period, and so we can go and we must. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 22 to 24, Jesus says, If you bring your gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee. Please note the language. Jesus is saying, you are the one who came to worship, and you didn't do anything wrong. Sometimes that's where we like to find ourselves. We like to get to the space where we can declare ourselves innocent and righteous. I didn't do anything wrong. We love that position. In our minds, it's the higher ground, and that's the one I want. Well, Matthew chapter 5, that's you. You've come to worship God. You've brought your gift to the altar. And, but before you offered, you remembered. You bring your gift to the altar, and there remember, your brother has ought against you. You don't have the ought. He has the ought. What are you to do? Don't keep offering. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. If that's the position you're in, the Bible says go with the goal of reconciliation. Well, what if you're the one who did the wrong? Well, that's Matthew 18, 15 to 18. If your brother trespass against thee, go to him and him alone, and tell him his trespass. Whether I am the one who did the offense or whether I'm the one who remembers that the other person has the problem with me, either way, I'm to go. Now, what happens when I go? Well, if I'm the offended, I go, point out the wrong, and offer my forgiveness. What if I'm the one who did wrong? I go, and I make my apologies, and I ask for forgiveness. How are we going to reach reconciliation if both of us do our part? You can't do both. 
And sometimes people seem like they want to play tennis by themselves. They want to control the entire narrative. What we do is behave like God. I've been offended against, and so I go hoping to restore the relationship. But on the other hand, if every time we are done wrong, we get angry, we retreat, and some people run so fast away from the wrongdoer, and they lash out, cause name, burn bridges, and what they're trying to do is run so far away, you can't get to me and ask for forgiveness. I don't want to forgive you, and so I get as far away from you as I possibly can. No, I'm supposed to go and offer pardon. The only reason humanity has a relationship with God is that God didn't retreat from man when he sinned. And if we did the offense, let's make sure we don't respond like Cain. Number seven, God saw what Cain did. In fact, we're supposed to learn this from Genesis 1 to 4, and then all the way the rest of the Bible. The infinite God of heaven, the Alpha and the Omega, the infinite nature of God. Part of that infinite nature is to be omnipresent. Proverbs 15, 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. It is correct, and we should make sure that we teach and say and understand that God does not and cannot fellowship sin, and neither does he endorse sin. He never does, and that would be right. But it would not be biblically accurate to say that God cannot look upon sin or God doesn't see sin, because God sees everything. Everything's included in his omnipresence the evil, and the good. He saw Eve and Adam eat of the tree. He saw Cain offer the wrong thing. And he saw Cain murder his brother. The Bible says he sees everything. Psalm 139 verses 7 through 12 talks about the omnipresence of God. David asked the question, whither shall I go and flee from thy presence? He says, if I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, you're there. If I ascend up to the heavens, you're there. If I shroud myself in darkness, even though there, you're there. The, the light, the darkness does not hide from you. The light and the darkness, they're the same to you. God sees everything. It's one of the reasons also that you cannot mock God. He sees what you're doing. He knows your thoughts are far off. And so he can't be mocked, Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Now, the presence of God is not intended to prevent us from having problems. Knowledge of an event does not imply either prevention or causation. That's not the way it works at all. You can know a thing will happen without causing it or preventing it. And chances are good, you've had that experience already. If someone chooses to spend their money more than they make, and repeatedly do this over time, what we know is they will find themselves drowning in debt. Now, you could know that that's going to happen, and you could even uh, counsel them to avoid or stop that from happening, and they still could do it. God made us free, and so we get to choose. He knows, and He watches our choices. His presence in our lives was never intended to convince us that we won't have problems. That's not why it's there. 
Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 28. In fact, if you haven't read the Sermon on the Mount, as we call it, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you should read it. You should hear our Lord's first address to humanity. One of the things he says is, if you follow me, you're going to suffer. Why would anybody be surprised if they follow him and suffer then? At the end of this first address to humanity, Jesus talks about two men, one wise, one foolish. And he says the wise man is the one who built his house on the rock. Question, when did Jesus say that if you built your house on the rock, I will prevent the storm from hitting it? When did he say that? You see, the house built on the rock and the house built on the sand, both were beset by the storms. The rain came, the wind blew. On which house? Both of them. Well, what's the point then? Can't you see it? One stood and one fell. And great was the fall thereof. His presence does three things in our lives. His presence is there to comfort us in the midst of trouble. Peter says, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 in the first four verses that the mercy, the God of all mercy has comforted them. And the mercy with which he comforted them, they now comfort other people. Secondly, his presence is there to assure us he will judge the world and he will judge the unrighteous. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 30, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Listen to the word will. I will do it. Trust me. I see it. I know it. I'm here with you, and I assure you, I will repay. His presence is assurance that you can keep living a righteous life, and even if you suffer, he will avenge. He will take care of it. Number three, his presence teaches us to think and act like him. That's Matthew 5, 43 to 48, that he gives his son and his reign to the just and the unjust, and that we are to love our enemies the way God does. And ultimately, what his presence does is lead us so that we can, to use Peter's language, follow in his steps even when we suffer. Those are the lessons that we draw from these verses. Now, let's talk a little while about the question itself. That's in verse number 9. I would have said that that was introduction, but I didn't want to scare you. The actual question is much shorter. The question is there in verse number 9, and it's the second of three questions in this text that God asks. After watching the murder occur, God came back to, to Cain and he said, Where is Abel, your brother? Just as he did with Adam and just as he did with Eve and just as he does with us, he now comes to Cain and asks the question, Sometimes children ask, well, if you knew the answer, why did you ask the question? Well, I can assure you this. Chances are good, young people. Your parents always know the answer. Chances are good. But like God, they're asking that question because he wants us to, to think 
He wants us to reason. He wants us to consider our actions. He wants us to ponder. It's like holding two things in your hand and you're being asked to, to look at them and to weigh them and to, to, to see if what you're doing is in harmony with God and His character and His will and His actions or if what you're doing is out of harmony with God and His, and His Word and His character. James calls it the mirror of God. We stand in the mirror of His Word and we examine ourselves. That's what God is doing. God's Word is the standard. God's character is the goal. And God's mind revealed is the rule of faith and practice. And here's the question. Where's your brother? We might ask, which brother? You know, there are at least three kinds revealed to us in Scripture. There are created brothers I know that because of Genesis 1, 26, 27, it has reference to mankind. Every human being that bears the image of God is, in some sense, a brother. God made that individual, and that person is a son of God. Ultimately, that's absolutely right. He created all men in his image. We are, to use Paul's language, his offspring. And so they are created brothers, mankind. Where's your brother? And then there is at least what I would call then common brothers. What we understand is physical family. That is those who are born in the same houses, in the same relationship, just like Cain and Abel. Adam knew his wife. She had a son. Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son. They're brothers. That's different than created brothers. There's a bond there. There's a specialness there. There's a uniqueness there, a closeness there. Sometimes even physical brothers have issues, as we see here in Genesis 4. And then there is covenant brothers. Oh, you mean covenant brothers? Well, see, those are the ones who've been born again. John 3, 3 through 5, those are the ones who have been born into the family of God. Ephesians 3 and verse number 15. That's family. In fact, when Jesus was questioned in Matthew chapter 12, and he was told, your mother and your brothers and your sisters, your family is outside and they want to see you. Jesus' response was to turn to those who were his disciples and ask, who are my brothers? Who are my mothers? Who are my sisters? Those who do the will of God. What Jesus said is these covenant brothers, well, they excel every other kind of brother. Where is your brother? That's the question. You know, when we hear that in the New Testament, and as in our time, if somebody were to just quote Genesis 4, verse number 9, and God said, where's your brother? And then Abel respond, Cain responded, am I my brother's keeper? We would generally take that and we say, that's right. We have lost sheep here in the congregation, and we need to be concerned about them. I certainly don't want to argue with that because I believe that's true. But it's more proper to put a little finer thought on that. What God is asking is not one of Cain's siblings that maybe have wandered away from the family and gone into the world. That's not what he's asking about. The specific reference here has to do with the brother that's gone because of Cain's actions. There are members of the Lord's body who have left because of their brethren. What you and I want to consider in answering the question is, have I done something to one of God's children, my brother, that's caused them to leave the family of God? See, that's the question. 
Maybe it's my bad behavior toward them. Maybe it's our fighting. Maybe we've murdered the character of our brother. Maybe because of a lack of love and unity, care and concern, Abel didn't just wander away from the family. Where's your brother? Cain killed him. John says to hate your brother is murder. And while we cannot force anyone to stay with the Lord, we can all make sure that we're not the reason they leave. And there are far too many Christians within the brotherhood of the Lord's family that don't give enough concern to how they treat their brothers and sisters. You don't know sometimes the struggle somebody has within their lives. Some people barely make it into the building. All I could do was to get up and barely get dressed and barely get here. So many problems, so much drama, but I made it. Come through the door and met with, hmm, you going to wear that? I ain't seen you in a while. Well, if you're going to keep doing that, I guess you need to straighten up your... Hey, you know you shouldn't talk to that brother or sister like that. Listen, I just keep it real. This is just who I am, and I just tell people the truth. And I'm not going to be sugarcoating, and I'm not going to be— I just tell people the way it is, and if they can't— Where's your brother? There are so many passages in the New Testament that emphasize with— a laser accuracy and the sun's hotness. The responsibility of every individual Christian to bring their character and disposition attitude in harmony with Jesus. You're obligated to guard your tongue. You're obligated to temper your temper, to be considerate, to be thoughtful and loving, to be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Loving one another is the way the world will know we are Jesus' disciples. That's what our Lord said. But he also said it's the way they will know that Jesus is God's Son. John, the apostle of love, wrote about love and said, love one another, but not like Cain. He wrote about it in the gospel. He wrote about it in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He writes about it in the Revelation. I challenge you to find something more important to God and more in line with Christ than our love for one another. I have three daughters, all beautiful, great people fantastic individuals. Rarely do I talk about them anymore publicly because they're grown and they can come see me. But I remember early on when they were smaller children, they used to uh, fight with each other like all children do, and they have their disagreements. And I remember saying to them one time, hey, listen, don't hurt my baby. And it took them a, a second or two to realize they're all my babies. And what I was trying to suggest to them is when you hurt your sister or when she hurts you, you're hurting me. 
because all of those are my children. And you don't have a right to hurt my baby. Well, that's what I was trying to get across. Let me ask you this. What do you think God's trying to get across? God looks out over the church of our Lord and sees his children. And then he sees one of his children hurting another one of his children. You and I have to be very careful we don't act like Cain and hurt our brother because that's God's child. Humanity begins in a family. And with family, you grow more intimate and more intimate with physical family. But that bond is ultimately perfected in God's spiritual family through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you hurt one of God's children, he might just ask you, where's your brother? We can't make people stay. But we need to make sure we're not the reason they go. Abel's no longer able to come home because his brother murdered him. It's not just lost sheep. Just make sure we didn't drive them away. Not a Christian this morning. You need to become one. You know, one of the things we love about the Bible and about God is his honesty and transparency. See, we could have a sermon like this this morning about God's people and sometimes the fact that we don't act right is because we never make a claim of our perfection. We never go around saying, come to our church, it's better than your church. That's never what we say. No, we invite you to come to the Lord's church and to be a part of his family. And inside of that family, well, we're not perfect, but we're saved and we're striving to grow more and more like our Savior. Our invitation this morning and the Lord's invitation is for you to come be a part of that. To believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, John 8, 24. To change your heart and your mind, you do that as a result of learning, John 6, 44, 45. They shall all be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father, cometh to me. When you hear and you learn, you believe. You allow that belief to change your heart and your mind. The Bible calls it repentance. Literally, a new mind. You confess the name of Jesus. Be immersed in water, buried with him in baptism, so that God through Jesus can save you, wash you away your sins, and give you a home in heaven. If you've never done that, this invitation is for you. We beg you and invite you to come. But if you have... Brothers and sisters, let us be mindful of our brothers and sisters. And let us make sure we're not the reason that we're not acting like Cain toward our brothers and sisters. And if you need to make things right with God, do so now. We can help in any way. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.